Welcome to the Disruptor Network Podcast. Welcome to another episode of Disruptors Podcast. For this interview, I have the honor of interviewing John Sine. He's a global feature. He is a lecturer. He's a TED Talk speaker. He's been globally recognized in his keynotes, talks, and masterclasses as Africa's first Singularity University faculty member. He's a lecturer at Duke Corporate Education. He's an associate partner at Copenhagen Institute for Future Studies. In this episode, we discuss human science, neuroscience, quantum technology, futurism, and how that impacts your business and corporations today. This talk was insightful, it was intriguing, it looks into the current present, but also gives us a dive into the future. Listen to his podcast. Ignition. Lift off. Uh, I know I know you've been recognized, you have global recognition, you've been a keynote speaker, uh, several TED Talks, You're, you do master classes at, at Africa's first Singularity University. You're a lecturer at Duke Corporate Education, associate partner uh, at Copenhagen Institute for Future Studies. And like I shared with you, John, earlier, I'm a huge fan of Ray Kurzweil. He's a futurist. He actually predicted the idea of, you know, the cell phone, the size of our hands, right? This computer, the size of our hands. He didn't call it an iPhone at the time. So I was intrigued by, you know, interviewing you today. And for those viewers that are watching, can you explain to us the idea of like, um, what is the singularity theory? Explain it to us in layman's terms. Well, very simply, it's when computers become smarter than human beings. Yeah. And uh, I think I think the, the trajectory is sitting at 2030 odd or 2040 odd, it's somewhere there. So yeah. we're about 15 years away from that. But it has been disputed by other thought leaders, like um, the founder of Wired magazine. He had a whole issue with that idea. But we are seeing the exponentiality of technology take hold, becoming cheaper, faster, smaller, right across the board. So we don't know if they'll be as smart as humans or as emotionally intelligent, but they'll definitely have skill sets that we can't even imagine right now. I remember as I share with you being in college and studying Ray Kurzweil and he charted the biological evolution of the human being went this way and the evolution of technology went this way <laughs> at an yeah. exponential rate, you know, and yeah. as a millennial, uh, to me personally, that idea, I was very em 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 embracing. It, it wasn't scary, but I know to some people, the idea of technology advancing at an exponential rate can be a scary thing. Uh, why exactly is that? Or, or why do we fear, you know, the idea? Of well, taking it's not just technology. Remember that uh, when electricity was introduced, which was technology back then, was incredibly scary for many, many people. There was, in fact, many movements to talk about how dangerous technology, I mean, electricity was and how we should be using it. And we yeah. see that with the advent of everything. You know, the Industrial Revolution had the Luddites that wanted to break down factories and tractors. And now what we have is AI and data points that is the new scary factor for people. So there's two types of people, right? There's people that are motivated by change and people that don't want any change. Mm -hmm. And so it's really about the excitement that gets me going when I think about the opportunities that this change brings about. But the key factor here is, are you willing to change yourself? Mm -hmm. Are you willing to let go of your identity that belonged to the old era? in order to get ready for this new era. And that's the thing that's really stopping people and making them fearful. 
And so the world is divided up by people that are motivated by fear or by love. And the ones motivated by fear are the ones that are being stuck behind and the ones by love are looking for opportunity and excitement. I was watching one of your uh, Instagram live posts and you talk about grand transformation growth has three phases, the sad, the strange and the adventure. We're in the mix between the sad and the strange. We are having a crisis of meaning of what it means to be successful. And all these things are dissolving around us. So we are moving this in a state of strangeness and nothing makes sense. I thought that was such a powerful statement because you can take it both applying it to your business. You can apply it to your personal life. You can apply it to spiritual growth. Give us some insight into what you meant by these three phases and, and how do we reconcile this? You're right. You know, as Americans, especially as Americans, we have this idea of what it means to be successful. The type of car we drive, the type of house we have, the type of family, you know, we have where we are at the age of 35, at the age of 40. Um, give us some insight when, when you stated this. Well, I think what's happening is that we are reaching the end of a cycle and this cycle was predicated by the industrial revolution and by the baby boomers. The combination of those two ideologies have been things that we've been living with for the last 80, 100, 200 years. Yeah. And the idea of success was very much built into the marketing, the media and the propaganda. Yeah. And the things that we used to implicitly trust are starting to dissolve. So if you think about education, for example, uh, having an education or having a degree would promise you a job and a successful life. That doesn't count anything anymore. Marriage, we're seeing less and less people get married and more and more people get divorced. The very structure of marriage is also dissolving in many ways. Religion, uh, the fastest growing religion in the world today is no religion. And religion used to be something that we used to wholeheartedly trust. The news, propaganda, socioeconomic systems, America printing 38% of its money in the last 18 months, the socioeconomic system, the house of cards that it all has, is all starting to dissolve around us only because of yes. the internet yes. and the transparency that we have around these things. So the power of propaganda is starting to fade away and we are now starting to see things as they are, as our consciousness grows and our perspective changes. So we are in this crisis of meaning. And what this crisis of meaning gives us is a lot of sadness because the identity we had created, everything we'd worked for almost is becoming irrelevant. Mm. And we have to start, start redesigning what it looks like to be mm. successful, to add value to the world. And this is where the strangeness comes in because an NFT, so strange, nobody really quite understands it yet. The multiverse, so strange, like, transgender so strange but this is the new world that we're moving into and the people that are adaptable the people that are wise and let me just explain what wise means wisdom is best described by alan watts he says the knowledgeable man has to learn something new every day but the wise man has to unlearn something new every day and it's the people that are able to unlearn are able to adapt are the ones that are going to thrive in this new world so it's unfortunate that we are in the sad and the strange, but incredibly fortunate because we get to participate and become real architects of this future together. And so we can redesign it as participants of this new world. So it is a tough time, and I think we still have a few more years to go and a bit more strangeness and sadness to come. But I do think that we have a very, very optimistic, um, well, I'm very optimistic about what's still to come. John, you use the phrase, you know, participants of this new world. So yes. 
I'll share personally, you know, I'm 35 years old. I'm from the millennial generation. When I graduate, while I was going through college, it was very traditional linear expectations, right? Uh, economy hadn't hit yet. Um, you know, you were still expected to go to college right after high school, get a job, get married, all, all those linear traditional expectations of our American culture. And so when I graduated, I was hit with the reality of what the world around me really looked. That's when social media started emerging and we had the, you know, um, the, the citizen journalists that could tweet and, you know, share with the world. The, the idea of transparency, politicians could no longer hide behind propaganda campaigns, yeah. you know. Um, yeah. the, the corporate job structure changed, layoffs were happening left and right. So I was awakened to this new world mm -hmm. and I was mm -hmm. almost like, at that shift of mindset, I was like, wait a minute, I was told one thing and mm -hmm. I was told if I did this, these were the expectations. Yeah. But the, 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 this world doesn't seem like that to me, right? Yeah. And so I'm the millennial generation and you talked about the baby boomers and the, the generation. So this older generation versus this new generation, those that are younger than I am, that are really yeah. coming into this world and opting out of college and yeah. you know, um, pursuing their, their dreams and their aspirations and their fashions and their passions. So how do we reconcile what the younger generation desires and wants and is almost like trying to like express to us and us older folks, including myself saying, wait a minute, there's their steps, their steps to achieving this self-fulfillment, the success, quote unquote. Well, I think these generational archetypes have been with us forever. We've only become aware of them now. And so the, I think the Greta Thunberg, Mitch McConnell is the perfect example of Greta Thunberg talking about this new idea of success. And Mitch McConnell is going, well, I don't understand what you're talking about because my idea of success is this. And so there's this battle. So what I'm starting to see actually is if you think about what crypto is, for example, um, the idea of crypto is that the older people have made all the money and are holding on to all the money. So right. you keep your money and we'll just create our own economy. And this is what's happened. This is what crypto is. It's a parallel economy that you have not given us opportunity to engage with your economy because you've got all these gatekeepers called banks and investment companies. And all that is, is that if you're not rich and white, you can't get in there. So, you know, we, we try and they, they're pretending like they're protecting us, but really what it is, they, it's a gatekeeper to wealth. And so what's happened now is that we're now waiting for this transparency to become more and more obvious to all of us. And slowly but surely the strangled hold of what they have on us, both with propaganda and with financial terms. And look, I've just come back from Italy. I was on a speaking tour there and the Catholic church still has the stranglehold on the whole community in, in Italy around the fact that religion is something that most people need to fear because that's the stranglehold they had. But that's even dissolving, right? Mm. So we have to get to a point where, and I speak about this quite a lot, it's called um, decolonize, democratize, and participate. And what this means is we have to decolonize the future. In other words, when European countries went into Africa and into South America, what they did was they colonized those countries. And in other words, they took all the rights of the young of the of the indigenous people away. Now, something incredibly disgusting that we look at today. But guess what we're doing to our future generations? We are colonizing the future. We have to decolonize the future. 
And that's a big drive that we need to have is that the older people that are making the decisions won't even be here to benefit or not benefit from the situations that we've got in the future. The second thing we have to do is democratize who makes decisions. And we're utilizing blockchain and the transparency of the internet to have more people around the table having louder voices. Greta Thunberg, again, a great example of changing society with her voice on social media. And then finally, the opportunity for all of us to participate in the world ahead. We've never had a louder microphone. Each and every one of us now is a media company. So if we look at decolonizing, democratizing, and participating in the future, we now have a system to think about where we can create a future that really gets the older generation just to move to the sideline while we create our own new world. Man, uh, so many mental notes that I'm taking from this, John. <laughs> so many mental notes. So I love the idea that you use cryptocurrency and blockchain technology because you're right. If you use that as an analogy to explain the old from, from the new generation, you know, the old generation said, no, institutions govern wealth and yeah. banks govern wealth, right? And those wealthy, right, can continue to grow their wealth. And blockchain yeah. was almost like the, like the paradox to that, like the anti- anti-institution yes. and no this this is about transparency and this is about participation and yes. and so that's that was the idea of a blockchain and, and cryptocurrency so taking what you've shared now how do we apply that to our business as business owners growing teams or growing leaders or or working with uh, co-workers when we're here and, and we're building this team, you know, the old school would say, you know, there are rules, there are structures, there's regulations, there are cubicles. And what I'm noticing now, Google can be a perfect example of that, um, that, you know, employees have the, almost this uh, autonomous state where I'm part of this organization, but, you know, I have the ability or the freedom to go into the game room and relax or work all sorts of hours, but then take as many vacations as I'd like. What are you seeing in terms of corporations or companies and how can we apply that as micro businesses or as business owners to our own business? So a great question. I wanna start off with the fact that blockchain is a decentralized and institutions centralized. Yeah. And institutions is masculine and blockchain is feminine. And if you think about it, we're having a feminine uh, uprising and who's yeah. the most famous person in the world? Beyonce, feminine. And not even just Beyonce, woman of color. And just think about how massive that is in the history of humanity, where you have an Oprah and a Beyonce and an Angela Merkel. And these are incredible human beings that are the queens of the world. This was never the case. So, you know, we had Elvis and the Beatles and, you know, we had these people that we used to look up to. This has totally changed the dynamics and technology is almost reflecting this, or it's almost like reflecting each other. So let's keep that in mind because the sharing economy is feminine. The capitalist economy is masculine. So we're also seeing that. As far as businesses are concerned, where we are able to create these sort of futuristic teams or futuristic ideologies, there's two things we need to keep in mind. The first thing is we have arrived in an era I call the era of forced entrepreneurship. In other words, the idea of linear education and getting a job is no more something to be secured on. What is and what you can secure your future on is your own entrepreneurial drive. Now, entrepreneurship doesn't always mean having your own business. It means that I get excited to solve problems with the gift of solving a bigger problem. Correct. That's 
what an entrepreneur really is. So you can do it within an organization, outside an organization. So what Google has done is they've made become very clear of the type of personality that is attracted to that brand, which is really an entrepreneur working within a big tech company. So that's really important because you can't just open it up to anybody because the type of person that arrives might not be an entrepreneur and need that structure of a nine to five job because that's all they've been taught. That's what their identity is stuck at. What I have seen in my experience is if you have those sort of people, it's important to also understand that the current business model that you have might not be relevant in the future, even though it's making money at the moment. And what I've seen is really two types of businesses forming within one business. I call them the today and tomorrow business. The okay. today business is about keeping the lights on, making sure the business that you're in currently is more efficient and more modified and just keeps tracking along and chugging along. These are the 95ers. These are the people that are very comfortable in the old way of thinking and doing things. Yes. Not totally irrelevant yet. Over the next 10 years, will become super irrelevant. Mm. Then you have the tomorrow team. And the tomorrow team is thinking about things tech first, digital first, blockchain first, AI first. And these guys are building the tomorrow teams of what's to come. And you almost need a parallel sort of structure inside businesses so you can be doing both. And that's the point of being in a transition. You have one foot in the past and you have one foot in the future. Eventually, we will just be in the future. But for the moment, we need to have both of these alive. I'll give you one example that will make sense. Japan Airlines wanted to understand what the future of airlines could be, and they very quickly realized that their current management team would never understand anything outside airplanes, airports, air stewards, air hostesses, and planes, right? So, because that's all they've been trained to understand. So they developed a tomorrow team. They took $70 million, and they partnered and collaborated with startups to try and figure out what the future of travel could look like. And they came up with something unimaginable. It's called limitless travel. And what limitless travel is, it's travel without ever leaving your couch. And so what does it look like? It looks like this. You have avatar systems around the world or robots, type of humanoid robots. And let's say that you and I want to go and spend the day in Australia. Mm -hmm. And what happens is in Sydney, there are two, there's many avatars, but we, you and I take two avatars. We put goggles on and we put a suit on. This suit is exactly the same suit that this avatar is wearing in Sydney. And this suit can give us, it's almost like a technical skin that gives us the emotion. I mean, not the emotion, the, the sense of heat, cold, touch. And what happens is that we embody this avatar. And this avatar, like you and I, will walk down the street in Sydney, look at each other, see each other because we've got goggles on and the suit on. Wow. This is now non-geographical, limitless travel that wow. Japan Airlines has created by only creating a tomorrow team. Wow. Their today team is very much still established and necessary because it's paying for the tomorrow team. But you understand that the same team can't do both. So it's not about just bringing the Google ideology to all businesses. You have to bring parts of it and then parts of it have to actually stay older so that you can together forge the future you want. John, so interesting. So in that particular case study, can we argue that their today team were their current corporate employees and the tomorrow team that they created were the partnership small business startups that helped them innovate the idea of you know, this virtual travel, which is insane. That is insane. I'm going to limitless this. travel. Yeah, yeah, go check it out. Look, um, let me just make one one uh, 
just a shift in your mind. Innovation is doing what you always did, just a bit better. It's modification of the current system. Disruption is making your current business model obsolete to create a new business model. You must have a very different ideology because innovation in itself can be a scary loop to get caught up in by mistake. Because if you think you're doing enough, you could actually be going backwards. I'll give you an example. Gillette razors. You know Gillette razors? Uh, yeah. You know Gillette for men? So Gillette was stuck in an innovation loop. They went from one blade to two blade to three blade to four blade to five blade to six blade. Who asked for all these blades? We didn't. They just kept adding blades. And in 2019, they lost $8 billion off their balance sheet. At the very same time, the $1 Shave Club was had a subscription model with one blade that sold for a billion dollars to Unilever. Procter & Gamble lost $8 billion. Unilever paid $1 billion. Gillette got stuck in an innovation loop, which the market didn't want. They just did what they did last year, just a bit better. Mm -hmm. $1 Shave Club created a disruptive business model that made this business model obsolete to create a new one. Right. So keep in mind that innovation on its own is not always enough, especially through this transition. That's right, that's right. So then I'll ask you a follow-up to that, you know, for antiquated industries, um, you can say mortgage and, and real estate and banking for antiquated industries, how do we begin to adapt that mindset of innovation and start to prepare our, our teams, our colleagues, our coworkers, our managers to really start bringing in innovation? Like, what would you say are like, these are the preliminary steps that every CEO should start to take? in order to bring in that innovation in, 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 in their businesses? Um, don't ask the existing people working for you to come up with tomorrow's business model. And I'll tell you why, is they haven't been hired for that. They were hired for yesterday's business model. They were trained in yesterday's business model. Let me ask you, how does Japan Airlines ask existing pilots to come up with limitless travel with avatars in Sydney? They can't. Because mm. the, 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 the pilots only know how to be pilots. Now you're gonna ask pilots to create avatar systems. They have no idea. So what I would always, and what I do always suggest to CEOs is develop a tomorrow team, a team of young dynamic entrepreneurs that you can partner with that are gonna forge the future of your business. So instead of them competing against you, buy them, partner with them, collaborate with them so you can run in parallel to them. How do you attract that new talent? of young entrepreneurs and bring them into your business? What are, what are they run, looking for? Run a, a, do you know what a hackathon is? Uh, a hackathon, explain to me. So what you do is, uh, and I've been part of many, uh, what you do is you run a competition where you put, let's say $10,000 or $20,000 up for a prize money. And you ask teams of three to five young people with skills with AI, uh, blockchain, uh, design, copywriting, web development, those sort of ideas. And you put them into teams on a Friday afternoon. And you brief them on what solution you want them to come up with. So let's say we're in recruitment and we want to create a brand new way to recruit employees that are made of Gen Zs. How do we recruit Gen Zs? So we want Gen Z people in the teams and we want Gen Z people being recruited. Totally different skill set. Old people don't understand these people. On a Friday afternoon, they start and you give them Coca-Cola, Red Bulls and pizza and they 
work all the way through to Sunday afternoon. And in Sunday afternoon, they present to a set of judges and the judges choose who the people who are winning. And now you've actually developed a solution and a business that you can buy with the $10,000 prize money. And you can get those entrepreneurs to stay with the business, or you can just take that idea and run with it yourself in the business. This is called scaling the edges. And so what you do is you bring these smaller businesses in, you put them on the edges of your business. You don't bring them in your business because your business will eat them up because they don't understand them. And you let these little entrepreneurs run on the side and fund them just a little bit until they grow to a bigger sort of scale up. Then you take one executive from your team and you put them in there. And slowly but surely, you start scaling the edges of your sector until it becomes a standalone business. Such a great idea. That's a great suggestion. Such a good suggestion. Uh, I have so much to ask. Um, uh, question based on your TED talk titled Life is Not a Game. But I do want to know your thoughts on, before I get there, I do want to know your thoughts on the idea of formal education. University is really an institution and it's a traditional way that we viewed education, right? Where do you see? Um, do you see a space for universities or the institution of, of universities in this new world? Look, it's really tough to be in any form of education right now because what are you teaching people when you don't know what the future looks like? Mm. What, so what subject are you teaching them? Because who knows what the future looks like? I think the only thing we can be teaching people of all ages is adaptability. And let me explain what I think adaptability is. Adaptability is a mixture of wisdom and curiosity. Mm. Because when you have these two ideas combined, you're naturally optimistic and adaptable. Mm. When you are led by curiosity, you're not led by logical, absolute certainty and outcomes. You are led by curiosity of understanding something better. When you are wise, which means you have memories with no triggers, or like Alan Watts said, knowledgeable man has to learn something new, a wise man has to unlearn, what you do is you clean the slate of your past and you start from ground zero and then you let curiosity lead you and those two things together make you adaptable. These are emotional processes. They're almost not logical processes because logic gets in the way of adaptability. Logic requires straight line linear solutions. And if I just, let's just zoom out of it. In, 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 in agricultural times, the most important thing we could have as a skill set was our brawn, our muscles, our understanding of the soil and the seasons. When the Industrial Revolution arrived, those skill sets became irrelevant and we had to pick up left brain, logical, intelligent thinking, which is what we're still doing. But that is going to be automated away by AI and machine learning and data points. The new phase, which is called the quantum phase, which we're moving into now, requires intuition, which is curiosity, wisdom, and excitement. And so it's almost like we have to develop a brand new skill. So if universities can't tell us what the future is going to look like, then they can't teach us anything. What we have to learn is the ability to be agile and adaptable, because the person who's able to unlearn, to relearn the quickest will win in the future. Mm -hmm. I think that, that was hard for me, especially to unlearn what I learned, right? Four years of formal university and you graduate and then you learn that the world does not operate. All right, that's my dog. Me. Hey. Me. 
Stop it, beast. <laughs> what is it? Oh, I see him. That's a cute dog. What type of dog is yeah. he? Uh, just a rescue. So I don't know. Yeah. Uh, all right. So now I'll ask you on your TED Talk title, Life is Not a Game. You, um, you referenced 1989, the year 1989. It is an important date in America. Um, you also mentioned it was a, a segue into the, into the feminine consciousness. You know, you made some points, as you said, uh, are, we learning, are, are, we, are we learning the lives based on the memory of our past or are we living our lives based on the vision of our future? We have to understand that wisdom becomes a huge part of growth memories with no triggers uh give us some insight into what you meant by that well 1989 was a pivotal year where many things unraveled um the unraveling of the structure of communism Tiananmen square happened in 1989 the berlin wall fell the unraveling of the idea of capitalism versus communism Exxon Valdez happened, the unraveling of profit, profitability over everything else, even destroying nature. The World Wide Web was launched in 1989, the unraveling of our access to information. And for the very first time in 1989, the median age of the Western world tipped 40. And we know that humans, when we go from 39 to 40, we go from me to we. And there was a maturing of humanity. And so in this maturing, we start to see the feminine consciousness just to start beginning and the process of us moving towards the sharing economy, a more sort of nourishing environment that I believe as an optimist, I believe will become the, the future that we can participate in. I think it's key for us to understand the inflection points of how that started to sort of process from 1989. Now, the thing for me is that like I just explained, the future doesn't require logical left brain thinking, IQ, it requires AQ, which is adaptability quotient. And that adaptability quotient has never been taught to us. In, in, intuition has never been taught to us. It's never been something that we could practice. And so education doesn't actually celebrate curiosity. It celebrates you following a process that's been taught to you. And so we have to let go of that and we have to now develop and pick up on something new that gives us an opportunity to thrive in a future that is just uncertain. And so how do you conquer uncertainty? Stop looking for certainty. That's the first step. You know, as, as human beings, we've been addicted to certainty. Our brains love certainty, but we don't have that now. We don't have any anchor points into the future. In fact, Stanford University calls it DPO, Duration, Path and Outcome. Everything we do as human beings, we're always looking for how long something's going to take, duration, what's going to happen on the path, P, path, and outcome. What's the outcome going to be? And guess what? We don't have any DPO right now into the future. So we have no anchor points into what the future could look like, should look like, possible, probable futures. It's all up in the air. So our brains, the neuroscience in our brains is taking incredible amounts of strain because we don't have this grip or the certainty. And so the, the, the thing that replaces certainty is not trying to get rid of certainty, but to start focusing on curiosity and wisdom. Yeah. And those two characteristics releases us yeah. of wanting to have absolute outcomes. And this is the freedom and adaptability we need for the future. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we can grasp these concepts in America, you know, in parts of Europe, 
But when we apply these ideologies into other countries like you know Venezuela and, and Cuba, a very suppressive regimes, how do you think that this new way of thinking will change um, the people in those regimes, the young people in those regimes, and what are you seeing as the future for those countries? So look, the world has always been a duality. You know, I, I don't think we can get away from the duality. You need to have light and dark, you know, love and fear. This is what our world is made up of. If it didn't have that, it would be a boring, bland place. So I do think that we are moving into a future where we have digital dictatorships and blockchain democracies. Mm. And these digital dictatorships are Russia, China, maybe even Venezuela and these places that have capped their internet. So people have less access to information, which doesn't give them any freedom. And then you have the Scandinavian countries, Singapore, Dubai, these sort of places are moving into blockchain democracies where everybody's voting on everything because the technology allows us to. Mm -hmm. So I think we're having this massive split. And obviously you guys in America in 2016, there was this massive split inside your country, which again also showed itself in the rest of the world where the world is divided into the sort of nationalism and globalization, like split. And nationalism yeah. is very much around fear. People are fearful of yeah. newness. They want to stick to the old. And most of the people who are nationalists have always had privileges in the past that don't want to let go of them. And we know this very well. It's all around the world. Italy, England, Brexit, Greece. These people don't want to let go of their privileges. And so there's a backlash for that. But that's what the world we're in at the moment. So the future of Venezuela, the future of Cuba, the future of Russia. I don't know if they're going to get much better. But if you focus on Singapore, Burundi in Africa, if you focus on these sort of Ghana, the amazing blockchain democracies that are being birthed. So there's both. There isn't just one answer to that. Mm -hmm. um, you also mentioned, you know, the, the rebirth will happen in six to eight years from now. We'll enter in the, into this new renaissance or celebration of how we can bring new impact into this world. Where do you see our world six to eight years from now? Like visually, like paint that picture for me. Will we be more of a global citizen? Will we be more of a hybrid human? Um, visually, like describe that world that you see six to eight years from now. So firstly, let me tell you that research comes from a book called so the, the Fourth Turning. Do you know the book? I do not, no. So The Fourth Turning has become a Bible of sorts because it was written in 1996 by the two gentlemen that came up with the generational archetypes, the terms we use so comfortably today, baby boomer, gen, uh, gen, Z, gen X, Gen Y, Gen Z. These two guys, Neil Howe and William Strauss, did further research and realized that as humanity, we are going through something called a saculum. And a saculum is an 80-year cycle that humanity has been going through for hundreds of years. And so in 1996, they predicted financial crisis, political divide, job losses, a war, and all the things that we're experiencing right now. We're not going through a war, but we're going through COVID, which is kind of a war. We've lost close to 5 million people, and we've had an enemy, an invisible enemy that we've all been fighting. So... This is a prediction from their book. It's not even a prediction. It is just an explanation of where the cycle has been for the last few hundreds of years. And they just they were saying, look, this happened over the last 80 years and the last 80 years and the last 80 years. So the, their idea is that the Renaissance will come post-2028. Now, if we think about Renaissance in the past, the most, the most famous Renaissance is the Italian Renaissance, the one that we kind of think about when we think about Renaissances. Now, how did the Renaissance, the Italian Renaissance come about? Mm -hmm. The... European Black Plague. Mm -hmm. 
the bubonic plague that happened and destroyed most of Europe. And out of that was birthed the Renaissance. And in the birthing of Renaissance, what did we start doing for the very first time? Celebrating knowledge, art, and beauty. This was never the option pre the Black Plague. And so what the Black Plague does, it killed everything to give birth to new. So what I think the new Renaissance will be, well, not so much a celebration of art, beauty, and knowledge, but a celebration of humanness, our uniqueness, our curiosity, and who we are as individuals, and how we can actually propel and magnify the individual genius that we all have, where we can help everybody else around us and uplift humanity in our own capacity, where we are not cogs in a machine, but we are the machine itself. And individually, we have a lot of power that we haven't really tapped into. So visually, I think it will be a world of freedom, of movement. And I'm not talking geographical movement. It can be multiverse movement. And we are also moving into a world called the zero marginal cost society. And the zero marginal cost society is all about how digitization makes most things free. And as human beings, we forget that WhatsApp has made most of our communications free. Look at the Zoom call we're having now. This would have cost us thousands of dollars a minute 10, 15 years ago. Think about education and YouTube. Think about Spotify and music. Think about all these things that have become almost free for us to utilize. And we forget that they're free. We think that's just normal now, but it was never normal. Remember when we used to go and buy CDs and LPs and these used to cost a lot of money. Now all the music in the world curated for us cost us $5 a month. So we're moving into a digital free, almost free world where we have this opportunity to celebrate our uniqueness, our humanness, and who we are really in more ways than one. Mm -hmm. Almost creating this pluralistic society, you know, um, different voices and I I ideas that challenge, you know, perhaps mainstream ideologies. Um, wow, I, I have so many more questions, but I know that we're limited with time and I want to give the viewers the opportunity to listen and I want you to share um, what are you working on now? What new books, programs, anything that's launching soon? And where can we follow you? Where can we continue? Good. Well, thank, thank you so much for having me on. My latest book is Who Do We Become? And it's one of the biggest questions we could ask because who do we become in this new world? Who do we become through this transformation? What questions do we ask of ourselves and the society we're in to evolve to a world where we are proud of leaving to our children? I don't think any of us are really proud of leaving this world to our children at the moment. So this becomes a massive question for us. And so in the book, I go through the process of sadness, strangeness, and adventure. And what I explain in sadness is how important it is to mourn courageously. And when we are able to mourn courageously, we positively disintegrate into the sadness and we're able to gain post-traumatic growth. If we don't mourn courageously, we lose the opportunity to grow, to have the catalyst of the pain and the destruction that we're going through right now. And then the strangeness is for us to become comfortable with things we don't understand and look forward to learning new things rather than always seeking comfort. And we should rather be seeking discomfort in a time of challenge and strangeness. And ultimately, we'll have the most incredible adventure ahead of us when we are able to have tapped into 
the emotional state of who we are and able to be able to understand that learning new things is imperative right now so that we can be prepared for the new world that's coming. You can find me on all social media channels. I'm constantly sharing what I'm learning and what I'm writing about. And I'm always answering questions. So please join me on all of them. And my name is John Sane. There's only one John Sane in the world. Can you believe that? What luck I have. My mom and dad are Persian and they named me John. So yeah, we have, I have a, a very Christian English name with a Persian surname. And so it's a win out of seven and a half billion people. There's only one John Sane. John Sane, this was a brilliant conversation. Uh, so insightful. Thank you for sharing your insights and spending some time with us. Follow John Sine on Instagram, on YouTube, LinkedIn, on YouTube. TED Talks, on Google. We'll find him on the internet. Thank you so much for joining us. My absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. That wraps up our session with John Sine. He's a futurist, global speaker, featured TED Talk speaker. He's had best-selling books, and his next book launches in November 2022, Who Do We Become? So keep an eye out for his book. Uh, in the meantime, catch us on our next Disruptor Network episode.